Well, hello and welcome to episode six of The Wine List, which is a podcast for people who enjoy a glass of wine and go, blimey, that's really nice. Goodness me, I wonder how that was made. I'm sure it's grapes and soil and uh, you've got to put it in a bottle and stuff, but it must be more complicated than that. And you know what? It absolutely is. And to help me through the minefield that is viticulture and vinification is my old friend, Mr. Richard Lane. Richard, good evening. Good evening, Oliver. Episode six, as you've alluded to quite correctly, are we're going into the classroom a bit, although the usual caveat applies. This is not a formal wine course. This is a friendly chat about wine with my mate, hopefully um, educating him, helping him through the wine list. But we are having a little peep into the vineyard and into the winery in this episode, partly because it's important and quite interesting, very interesting, actually, of course. But also, more importantly, in the next step, we are going to have a bit of a four wine focus on tasting, getting into what tasting is in in a bit more detail than we have been doing up until now. We've been kind of cruising a bit. But in order to get us to that point, I think it's important that Ol knows a little bit more about how grapes are grown and how wine is made. And the funny thing is, when you mentioned this, you said, you know, I hope it's not going to be too much of a lecture and a bit boring. And the opposite has turned out to be true. I didn't think it was going to be boring because you're involved, obviously. But I looked at the documentation you sent me. It is fascinating and it is complicated. It's like I wouldn't want to be a grape farmer. I wouldn't want to be a winemaker. The responsibility, the variables, the things that can go wrong. And at the end of the day, um, if it goes wrong, you lose you lose money, you lose your livelihood. Terrifying complicated fascinating all these things oh fantastic brilliant and what i thought we'd do because a couple of bits of feedback we've had people really enjoying the apps enjoying the series enjoying the pod can we get to the wines and and sometimes i was conscious in the last step with australia and the new world we didn't actually start tasting till about 16 minutes so let's just have a little sip now and as we sip i'll tell folks what the wines are they should know already of course because they listen to each app they know which wines are coming up and they read our website at least five times a day so they'll know let's just have a have a little peep at the wines first up two wines very simple one white one red oh please take uh, the white wine in your hand or the glass of white wine in your hand you've got the bottle there i'll just read out the details but in summary this this is south africa's signature white grape variety chenin blanc okay oh tell us what you're seeing on the label well, yep, South Africa. It's called Lycian, L-Y-C-A-O-N, and it's called Painted Wolf. And there's a beautiful label, a lovely drawing of wolves, two of which are painted. Uh, simple as that, really. Old Vine, Chenin Blanc. And you're going to explain the significance of Old Vine a bit later. It's a 2019. The label is beautiful and very simple. I've been to South Africa, and I think you have as well, uh, Rich. Lovely place. Went wine tasting as well uh, in their most uh, in Stellenbosch. I was driving, but my wife um, didn't spit. So uh, she was very, very happy. Lovely country, lovely people, lovely wines. So let's taste it. Oh, it smells gorgeous. It does smell gorgeous. And I really wanted to obviously try and link the wines a bit to to this app, which is, as I said, talking a bit about grape growing and vineyards and what goes on in the winery. Old vines, let's just talk about that first of all. Vines tend to have a life of typically around sort of 30, 40, 50 years, but they can go longer than that. What's the point of having old vines? Does it mean they're better? The main thing that happens with old vines, which is directly relevant to the quality of the fruit they produce and therefore the wine that ends up in the bottle is, and with no rude jokes or parallels, the older you get, the slightly less you produce in terms of the amount of grapes. In other words, the yield. We've talked about yield, I think, once before. Yield basically means how much crop, how much fruit is grown in the vineyard. And as the vines get older, the yields become reduced and people think oh dear well, that's a bit of a drag because that means i produce less wine maybe make less money well not necessarily you can probably make better quality wine because the concentration in the fruit is increased because basically the yields are reduced so you can do more with the grapes that you've got effectively if you do the kind of grape growing vineyard bit well with old vines you can have some beautiful grapes that have wonderful flavor concentrations particularly if the climate's favorable the ripening happens kind of quite gently and consistently not too quickly as we've discussed before so that's the case with the vines that have produced this wine but also in terms of the wine making i was looking up the details of of this wine these are all wine society wines remember folks details on the website this particular wine the chenin which is which bit like last ep is 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 more expensive than the red this one is around 14 pounds 50 and the beaujolais we're about to taste is eight pounds 25 so it's nearly twice the price but let's figure about money for a sec this chenin blanc 
Yes, it's come from old vines, as I've just said, but it's been fermented in the winery in oak and quite often and usually fermentation, the process by which yeast consumes the, the sugar of the grape juice and converts it to alcohol. That usually happens in stainless steel with options from the winemaker to, to put the, the, the kind of finished wine, the fermented wine into oak if, if he or she wants to get smoky flavours into the wine. But quite often, particularly in South Africa, at entry level, Chenin Blanc is made in stainless steel and doesn't see any oak and is bottled early, consumed young. This wine, as I said to repeat, old vines, hopefully complex flavours, barrel fermented and sees oak barrels for maturation before it's bottled. We're getting complexity both from the vineyard and from the winery. So that's why I wanted to taste this wine. Let's sip the wretched thing. Oh, golly, sorry. I just did. Uh, I, I did as good, you were talking. Good, I was taking good. everything in. Tell me, tell me. I'll tell me. Really lovely, really full, complex, loads of things going on. I really like the um, the smoothness of this as well. I had a question as well. You were talking about old vines. You can you can still get very good wine from old vines. In fact, the concentration of the um, flavour means that that you that you've got a very good chance of. In terms of tending to an old vine, is it harder? Do they need more looking after, like an old person, despite? someone like Charlie Chaplin still being able to have children in his 80s. There's a sort of trade-off. It reminds me of photography when, you know, you've got the amount of light, you've got the aperture and you've got the shutter speed and you've got how quickly the object is moving. All sorts of variables and compromises you need to take in. Is there more tending to the old vines uh, than, than new? No, it's a fair question, but the short answer is no. <laughs> vines are pretty tough old things. I've trampled around a few vineyards over, over the past few years, especially during the year that Liz and I and Topper had, it, had in France. And sometimes you you look at vines, particularly in places like Languedoc, down in southern France near the Mediterranean, and I've been climbing up some quite steep vineyards there, and it's like a moonscape. You can't believe anything grows at all. Right, it's, really. It's so dusty and crusty and crumbly and stony. There's no vegetation. There's hardly seems to be any water, but yet the vines survive. Vines are really, really tough, and actually that's kind of part of the beauty of it which is why i want to call this episode the beauty of the earth because that gives me a cue to play my violin a bit later on oh excellent that we can't have an act without your violin i was going to cry call it vinny vitty drinky uh, we came we saw we drunk and i thought if i suggested that you might go oh, very good no yeah what well, correct well anticipated <laughs> <laughs> no the beauty of the earth it is and yes it, it, any excuse to get the old fiddle out fantastic kind of funny old way i think this is again links back to our history app which is why in a way it's possibly even by accident we've discovered that that vines who are as i said they're tough they're plants but they're tough they don't always get it easy and the reason they don't get it easy is because quite often other crops more important crops you know crops that can feed you got prime position and got the most fertile soils often vines were sort of important but maybe of secondary importance let's say and were planted up bank a bit more on less fertile soils where there's less water and all the rest of it and hey surprise surprise people started noticing that the quality of the fruit from these vines that were actually struggling a little bit because the, the soils weren't that fertile they had to work harder to get their water and their nutrients ended up producing better fruit and that is so important to the story if you like of grape growing everyone thinks Wow, look at those soils. That look at that climate. Lots of rainfall, really fertile soils, fantastic conditions for growing grapes. Uh, answer: Not really, because it's a kind of survival instincty thing. Without getting too geeky, but I'm sure most people listening will realise that fruit, if they and if they remember their kind of biology at school. The fruit of the plants is a kind of sexual reproduction aspect of the plant. It's all about seeds, isn't it? And, you know, spreading your seed and propagating and all the rest of it. That's what fruit is on, on, on a vine. And if you subject a vine to difficult conditions, even though a vine doesn't have a brain, like you and me, and lots of logical reasoning and stuff, if you stress the vine, it's going to focus its attention not on growing 
green stuff that helps it bind and structural stuff that helps it stay where it is it concentrates on producing fruit because what does fruit do it helps it reproduce and it's prolonging potentially the survival of that of that vine it's getting it out of a potentially difficult environment sorry if this is sounding a bit darwinian but you get my drift no, it's brilliant. It's so fascinating. And yet another complication to the uh, art of winemaking is that you need to sort of live on the edge, not the not quite the edge of survival, but you need to stress the plant a little bit uh, to make it make fruit that's more tasty. It makes perfect sense. It's making itself more attractive, if you like. So it's making more more juicy fruit rather than, like you say, the canopy stuff, which is the more stru- structural um, uh, stuff that keeps the uh, that keeps the vine going. Absolutely fascinating. And yet another complication to make the vine maker's life really difficult and a lovely happenstance sticking the vine in the, the less good soils because we're using the good soils for stuff to make us eat made us discover that it is a, a lovely sort of coincidence as well lots of chance lots of science lots of haphazard stuff all intersecting it's called wine that's why i love it so much initial sips on the chenin we haven't done much of a tasting note yet other than say it's really nice oh god i'm such an oaf why oh because because that's my tasting oh it's really nice <laughs> that's right oh i'm gonna we can i'm gonna get more out of you a bit later on and certainly in the next step as i explained the re- reason we're talking of, of, and focusing on these two wines and about the vineyard and winemaking is so i can really get some good stuff out of you next week set which is all about serious tasting so quick glance at our red wine tonight which is a 2020 Beaujolais village well some folks might think oh Beaujolais that's a great variety it's not it's a region and it's just south of um, Burgundy in eastern central France where we've been already and it's just above the northern road where we were uh, in last week's set so you know this is all falling into places ge- geography and the jigsaw puzzle and stuff Beaujolais of course well known for Beaujolais Nouveau and all the pranks that go on in November we'll maybe talk about that in a sec but let's not talk about theory. Oh, I just want your instant reactions on the aromas and taste of this Beaujolais Village Wine Society 2020, £8.25 a bottle. Thank you very much. OK, and as I spin it round in the glass, it uh, looks lovely. Mid-range red colour. It says Beaujolais Village. I might know uh, a little bit about what that means. That presumably means it's um, a little bit like we were when we were in um, Côte d'Rhône. Uh, I'm assuming that it means uh, it's one of the villages that have been specified by the Appellation Controlée as a village that creates good Beaujolais. You are such a good boy. Good, keen mm. student. <laughs> well done, Oliver. I don't think we'll need to beat you up this week. Well, so far anyway. Great. But there's a bit of consistency going on here. Beaujolais said, smallish wine region. Think of your pyramid. At the bottom of the pyramid, you've just got Beaujolais AC, Appellation Controlée, which is an Appellation that covers the whole region. 99% of Beaujolais wine is red, and it's made from the Gamay, G-A-M-A-Y, the Gamay grape variety. Beaujolais covers the whole region. Beaujolais Village is the next section up on the triangle. Slightly better quality. Why is it better quality? Well, it's because the grapes come from the villages which are higher up where the soil is, guess what, less fertile, stonier, a bit more inhospitable for the vines who have to work a bit harder to get their bacon and eggs. And so you get better concentration and slightly better wines. And at the very top of the hierarchy, as in Côte d'Rhône with um, Châteauneuf-du-Pape et al. in the southern Rhône. In Beaujolais, there are 10 villages that can put their names on the label. And they're called Cru, as we've come across before. An example of a Cru Beaujolais would be probably things you've heard of like Fleury, Moulin Avant or Morgan. These are all examples of, of Cru villages. But the actual generic Beaujolais village, which is, as I said, not quite at the top level, is the area around where those Cru villages are. The soils are granitic. They probably look a bit moonscapey, like my vineyards down in Languedoc. Very dry on steep slopes. So again, that slopes are good. Remembering um, terroir in episode three, they're going to get the sun. They're facing south the vineyards because it's coolish it can be pretty cool in Beaujolais but the summers can be very warm so it's not quite marginal but you know it's sort of in that sort of moderate climate area it's lovely and uh, I've just got this word in my head that I've got to say now uh, and it's caramel now does that make sense but I got a massive hit uh, the second sip I had of a Cadbury's caramel <laughs> so I'm even being I'm even being specific on the on the caramel I'm talking about is that possible this is really interesting all because you've picked up on something which is relevant to the way the winemaking is done for most Beaujolais just to explain have you noticed that this this Beaujolais we're tasting a lot of people recommend chilling Beaujolais slightly um, because it's such a great summer red wine and the reason it's a good summer red wine is that um have you noticed all Think back to the, um, the the 
French Syrah last week. Do you remember you took a sip and went, wow. And what did you, and what was your first comment? Oh, it's completely smacked in the face with tannins. Right. Yeah. Now taste completely. the Beaujolais again. Have a little sip. Well, not as much, certainly. Much, much lower. But going back to your earlier point about sweets or caramel or whatever you were saying, a common, if you like, tasting note for, for a lot of Beaujolais can often be something quite fruity, almost kind of confected fruit. And it's because most Beaujolais, with the exception of the crew, there's a trick that goes on in the winemaking. What you can do, and I won't bore everyone or yourself with the absolute details because it does go on a bit, but basically, if you starve the grapes of oxygen and you pile them on top of each other in a barrel, they split. But there's no oxygen in the barrel. And so the grapes start fermenting by themselves because there's always yeast, ambient yeasts on the skins of the grapes. You get that anywhere. And you get something called intracellular fermentation that starts going on. So basically the grapes start fermenting themselves. As a result of that, you can actually extract colour. But because the alcohol is quite low at that point, maybe only one or two degrees alcohol, as they start fermenting, the tannins from the Gamay grape are not extracted. So what the winemaker does, he sees, and it's done deliberately, he or she you know, sees that the grapes have split in this anaerobic environment. They've started doing this, this little bit of fermentation by themselves. They then whip the skins off the grapes and then ferment the rest of the wine as if it were a white wine, because I know we haven't discussed it yet, but the main difference, this is the point to mention it, the main difference between white wine making and red wine making is that it's the skin contact from the black grapes in red wine making that makes red wines what they are. That's where you get the colour from and that's where you get the tannins from because the tannins and the colour come from pigments in the grape skin. Obviously, red, black grapes give, give you red wine. Whereas in white wine making, Generally speaking, because as you know, well, there are always exceptions, you want to get rid of those skins straight away and just focus on the purity of the flavour in the juices that come from the juice of the white grapes, not n nothing from the skins. So in Beaujolais, yep. by doing that, you still get alcoholic fermentation. They'll use normal yeast and, they'll, and the yeast will eat the sugars in the Beaujolais grape juice. But there, there are no skins there to impart tannins and you end up with a really light-bodied, accessible fruity wine called Beaujolais. And all oh, that's why I think you said caramel hit, because as a result of this slightly funky intracellular fermentation, the grapes starting to ferment themselves in an oxygen-free environment in a barrel, as well as colour but no tannin coming out, you're getting some really quite funky, almost confected flavours. And the classic tasting notes for Beaujolais might be sort of banana or kirsch. But, you know, OK, you didn't say banana and kirsch, but you said to me, Rich, I'm getting caramel. And I knew where you meant. That's sort of almost slightly cooked, caramelised banana taste. That's definitely a funky Beaujolais flavour as a result of this slight trick in the winemaking. Get it. That's uh, amazing because uh, there's a bit of tannin in there but the tannin that hit me last episode was just like like hitting a brick wall but it's very very unlike that in the Beaujolais this is a wine that might quite suit me really because I'm not into despite being brought up on claret in Yorkshire in the 70s I'm not really into heavy red wines I'm into something you know a bit more sort of uh, refreshing so maybe that's the wine for me it's really really nice and the, but and then Chenin Blanc is is absolute knockout as well so there we go we've we've had an initial look at our South African Chenin Blanc and um, our Beaujolais our Beaujolais village Oh, just before we go on, nearly forgot a little bit of feedback from uh, last week's app, Australia. Just very quickly, news, news. There's news. <laughs> just read today that 2021, because, because of course in the Southern Hemisphere, they've just had their harvest already, of course, which happens generally sort of March, April time. Australia 2021, their fruit crush, don't you love those words, fruit crush, has been the most bumper fruit crush on record, they've had perfect weather, climatic and harvesting conditions in Australia because they've had no ridiculous heat waves. They haven't had terrible rain at the wrong period of time, but they've had enough rain to give the water table a bit of a go and the vine some access to the water that they need. So um, happy days, Australia. Just thought I'd throw that one in. That's great. Well, good on them. Excellent. It's just like, can we have a good news story as well these days, particularly when it comes to climate? And 
obviously there are terrible risks happening at the moment with regard to climate change. But Australia had a good year. Well, that's absolutely bloody marvellous. Well done, them. And I guess we look forward there, Richard, to the fruits of that good year in due course. Right, now I've got in front of me um, a picture from a textbook which uh, you told me to look at as part of my homework. I've got a a picture of a grape and it is the anatomy of a grape. And I'm like, uh, why is he um, asking me to look at the anatomy of a grape? Grapes are grape, right? Skin on it, gooey stuff on the inside, which makes wine. End of, move on. But no, it's a bit more complicated than that. Why did you think it was important for me to understand a little bit about the anatomy of a grape? Well, I, I guess it's important really in terms of understanding a bit more about winemaking because as I've already mentioned, Uh, talking about our Beaujolais just now. You know, grape skins are really important, especially in red wine making, because the skins are involved in the wine making process, where let's say, for the sake of argument in white wine making, although there are exceptions, they're not. I think that is important. Next week, we're we're talking about flavours and and tasting. So the flavour compounds that you get in wine they all occur because of what goes on in the skin and, and just under the skin, if you like, the kind of sub-epidermis of the skin of the grape. That's the crucial area for grape ripening. And that's why, you know, I keep banging on about you mustn't ripen an unripe grapes disaster. So cool vintages, marginal climates, bad news. Ditto, you know, really hot climates, ripening the grapes too quickly, also bad mm. news. Because mm. it's all about getting this gentle warming. You know, it's like having the grill on setting three rather than setting seven, which enables these these quite complex chemical compounds things like terpenes they're called and other flavor compounds to actually really slowly evolve in the grape and they occur in the skin or just under the skin whereas tannin that we've talked about tannin's really important in red wine whether you kind of try and ignore the tannin as in the cheaty type of thing we just discussed with Beaujolais or whether you deliberately as a winemaker think do you know what the tannin is so important because I've got such great fruit concentration I know the tannins are high, but that means with high acidity, which acts as a preservative, and high tannins and really lovely fruit concentration, I can stick these wines in oak and they will mature really well. And the point of putting them in oak is, other than getting some oak flavours, if you put them into new oak barrels as opposed to old oak barrels, because oak barrels are porous going into winemaking now and you get a bit of oxygen into the oak, they soften the tannins. Tannins become polymerized with age. So if you have a wine that's potentially, you know, has got great fruit concentration and thereby can stand up to a bit of oak flavors and, and a bit of tannins, as a winemaker, you can say, do you know what? I can produce beautiful wine, even if it's not going to be available on the market for a few years' time. And that's what happens a lot in Bordeaux. I made some mistake. Oh, when you and the boys came out to Bordeaux a few years ago to see me when I was out in France, I got all clever and ordered a glass of wine in a Bordeaux wine bar. And it was far too young. It was just full of tannins, like your French Syrah. If I'd had a bit more knowledge then, I wouldn't have done that. I might have ordered that wine but it would have been older by which time the tannins would have softened in the oak barrels and it's the tannins of course that actually start ripening out in the vineyard and again you need warm climates to kind of start ripening the tannins because the tannins are contained in the grape skin so again everything starts with viticulture sorry if I was kind of twisting and turning a bit just then but I'm trying to make this point that you know obviously everything is interlinked and what you do in the winery is so much related to what's gone on earlier in the vineyard and it's just not possible to have good wine unless you have amazing grapes and to have amazing grapes you've got to know an awful lot about viticulture you've got to understand your climate you've got to understand hazards you've got to know how to deal with problems as you've already mentioned it's like being a farmer growing grapes it's like being a farmer shit happens all the time oh it's much worse it's much worse (laughs) you've got so many more variables yeah Uh, i love the way you go amazing grapes as well like that just going back to the vineyard you could have perfect conditions what would perfect conditions be in the vineyard they would be a long dry growing season because grapes are are a plant i mentioned this in an earlier app they're dormant during the winter their little buds come out in the spring and their flowers come out late spring kind of late may their flowers mean they're about to do their sexual reproduction they self-pollinate by the way 
there's, there's not much fun going on in the sexual reproduction oh, of steaks with the vine. And it's the pollination that is called fruit set. It basically go from being flowers to being berries, and berries are formed by this self-pollination. That's all happening kind of late May, June in the northern hemisphere. So what the best conditions would be? Well, you clearly need good weather when that happens, if it's windy or cloudy. Let's not forget, vines are plants, or we haven't mentioned leaves. Well, we have. We've said too much green growth is a bad thing, right? Because it stops the fruit growing. The green growth is really important because the green growth is the energy of the vine. Remember your biology, photosynthesis, that's how plants get their energy. It's the chlorophyll in the plant's leaves that synthesize the carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, combined with the water coming through the roots, along with the nutrients coming through the roots, coming from the soil, you see how this is all interlinked now, that enables the vine to generate its energy to grow and ultimately to make its fruit. It's weird, isn't it? Another balance, right? This is another thing, right? So you don't want too much canopy, and yet you want enough canopy to get the energy to grow the fruit. You don't want the thing to be too happy because it, it'll just um, concentrate on growing greenery rather than growing the juiciness. But you don't want it to be too sad because you won't get the, the right yield, etc. It's, it's even more complicated than spin bowling. This is what I think. I think it's worse than the doozra in cricket. And I'm not even sure, as much as I love cricket, I'm not even sure I know what the doozra is. I looked it up once. It's really complicated. What is <laughs> It's going left, but it it looks like it's going left, but it's going right. It's going up, but only to a left-hander. I'm really into John le Carre novels at the moment. And, and, and I do get a bit stuck sometimes, you know, with the double agent and the triple agent thing. It's a bit like that. No, I'm like, John le Carre, will you stop? This is supposed to be my, this is supposed to be my free time. Stop making me work so hard. You know what I mean? And I, I, and I, just give me a story. What happened? Is he good or is he bad? Can you keep it clear, please? Oliver. This is where I sometimes mess up with poetry as well, Rich. Because I'm like, all right, I'll read a poem. There we go. This, 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 this. And you go, what, 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 what actually happened here? Or is this all a metaphor? And crosswords as well. Cryptic crosswords get me. Uh, it's just like, what is this crazy car crash hyphen carrot question mark? What? Just tell me. <laughs> Give me a clue. Tell me. Who opened the batting for England in 1984? That's it's easy. called subtlety and nuance. It's called human okay. life, Oliver. It's not all. Oh, is it? Yes, it's not all physics and calculus. Uh, 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 an absolute. An absolute. No, no, yeah. but so, to, so, but you've picked up on all of that really, really well. So again, without getting too lost in the detail here, leaves on vines are really important, and also it's how. And this is, I'd say this is probably the most important thing about viticulture, particularly in climates that are potentially a bit too cool or even climates that are potentially a bit too hot. When your climate is cool, so we'd be talking obviously northern France, Chablis, northern Burgundy, parts of New Zealand, you know, nearer the 50 than the 30, going back to 30-50. How you manage the canopy in, in the vineyard could be the difference between you, your business surviving or not. Yeah, question, question, question. Here's one that's been bugging me, Rich. When you are growing grapes, there is something called the weather. So it rains, it's sunny, everything in between, it's cold, it's hot, etc. Then there are things you can do as the, as the wine grower, the vine grower. What, in your opinion is the sort of proportion i don't exactly need a number a good vintage is when everything everything goes right it seems to be happening for australian friends this year which is awesome how much of it is to do with just good luck the weather was perfect that year and how much can the the vinist contribute or intervene to improve the vintage just by doing i don't know mechanical things or tying the vines or tying back the canopy etc to what extent is it just luck because the weather is like it is, versus the skill of the person who's in charge of growing the vines? Great question. And the answer is, it depends. <laughs> right. OK, I'm off. I'm giving up. Bye. That's it. See you next time. Um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Get your violin out. I've had enough. <laughs> if it's a really good, and we have picked up on this before, I think, in, in, in one of the earlier eps. It depends on whether you're growing grapes in a marginal climate or not. If you're growing your grapes in a marginal climate, then it's obviously more hit and miss as to whether Mother Nature is going to really sort you out in a good way. If Mother Nature does that, and we know that, particularly, let's just take northern France or central, you know, Burgundy, Chablis, Champagne, those sort of areas. I know if those years are good because they are the years that often when the cricket in England doesn't get rained off. If we have a good summer in southern England, you can guarantee it's been a good summer in marginal bits of northern France. So the grape growers in northern France will have had to have done less work because they'll have naturally had a good summer and it will sort of take care of itself. If it's a really hot summer, then you might need to think about not trimming back the leaves too much because one natural thing you do in the vineyard as a human being in a marginal climate, am I getting enough sun? Is the sun out enough? Do I need, are my grapes ripe enough? And one thing you can do, 
you can remove the leaves, particularly later on when the grapes are almost ready because most of the energy of the vine's done, it's done its job. So you can actually pluck some of the leaves, which means that the grapes can see a bit more sun and get more ripening. That's fine. But if you do that and then suddenly there's a heat wave and you've got no canopy, then your grapes can get sunburned. So that's a bit of a nightmare. Something else you can do as well in a marginal climate, if it's looking like a cool vintage, you can actually do something called green harvesting. And that's whereby you actually reduce the yield in your vineyard by you go around and actually pick grapes as they're ripening and actually reduce your yield. And as a result of that, the grapes will work a bit hard and you might get a bit more ripeness and a bit more concentration going on. So there are some human things you can do in the vineyard. But I think the most important thing is this th- thing whereby you can separate the green canopy from the fruit. And that's been done relatively recently. Most vines now are grown on trellises, which is makes it easier to tie back the green bits of the vine from the fruity bits of the vine, which means in cool climates, particularly the fruit gets maximum exposure to the sun. It also means at harvest time, a great big tractor can come along and machine pick the fruit rather than it being handpicked. So you're actually using the canopy um, as, a, as a controlling mechanism and you're also using the trellis as a, as a sort of harvesting optimizer as well, which makes sense. Amazing. God, the stress that must go into growing grapes, right? I wonder if there's a personality type that lends itself to being a grape grower, you know? <laughs> yes. I know farmers in the UK are always moaning about stuff. The weather's never quite right. It's like motorcyclists, too wet, too dry, too hot. The, the interventions you need to do to, to maximise your harvest to have massive implications on your income. Oh, it's extraordinary. And it may just be other things might just be a load of birds come in and eat your fruit just before harvest. So actually, you just might need a really good scarecrow kind of mechanism. Or, you know, if you get a hailstorm at harvest and Burgundy being in land and continental climates quite susceptible to hail, a hailstorm can, can wipe out a vintage in 20 minutes. What a nightmare. Uh, Rich, talking about grape varieties now and climate, I know that there are some grapes that will uh, flourish in cool climates, some in moderate, some in warm. And by warm, by UK standards, we mean effing hot, probably. <laughs> um, can you can you sort of differentiate between the cool, the cool varieties, in the sense of climate, yeah. uh, the moderate and the warm? Well, there are certainly varieties that will we can place neatly in, into a box on your spreadsheet, Ol, if that would help. Oh, lovely. Yes, yes, of course. <laughs> Excellent. The cool climate varieties uh, would be, well, you know one of them. We've already tasted Riesling, uh, yep. which is why it's so prominent in Germany, which is a, a cool climate wine country. Medium climate absolutely would be Gamay, as in the great variety that makes Beaujolais wines. Absolutely bang the middle in terms of performs really well in not too cold not too hot warm as in effing hot as you <laughs> so eloquently put it um again great varieties that form uh, that will certainly come into this variety and the most obvious one already tasted grenache or garnacha as it's called in spain you cannot ripen grenache anywhere cooler than the southern rhone which is pretty mediterranean just want to give a shout out because you know all there are always exceptions chardonnay you're going to say chardonnay yes yeah, because I've done my homework on this. And one of the reasons I was wondering whether... Ch- yeah, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. One of the reasons I was wondering whether Chardonnay was um, was so popular. It tastes nice, but it's adaptable, isn't it? Yeah, and that's why it's such a huge, quote, international, unquote, grape variety, because it grows everywhere, because it can grow everywhere. You can grow Chardonnay in southern England, Chablis, obviously, as we know only too well, through warmer bits of Burgundy, going south sort of into... Um, the Côte d'Or and the Maconnais, south of France, Australia, Chile, Argentina. Chardonnay grows everywhere. California, sorry, Americans. We will get to America at some point in this series. Next next step, actually. Yeah, Chardonnay has so many different faces because it's so versatile. It's so resilient. It can adapt to a cool climate, a moderate climate and a warm climate. And as a result, its taste profile changes. In a cool climate like Chablis, as we know, it's quite steely, it's quite reserved, high acidity, kind of green and citrus fruit. When it gets a bit more moderate on the Côte d'Or, the golden slopes of Burgundy, about you know, 50, 100 miles south of Chablis, it's getting a bit, little bit fleshier, a bit more peachy. And when you get to places like California, really or warm sites in California, because not all California is warm, by the way. Everyone thinks California is warm. It can be very Long cool. and thin. Yeah, long, long and thin. thin and lots of fog and all sorts of stuff. But we'll get to that next week. But when you get a warm uh, growing area for Chardonnay, it can become mango, tropical fruit, pineapple, banana. Wow. 
So we are talking, yeah. So Chardonnay is, is the is the great exception, I suppose, to, to that rule. And just reading through my notes as well, right? Or actually your notes that you gave me to read. And I, I've been doing very well this, this week. You say something which I just don't understand. Just going back to soil briefly, and it's really interesting to know how when you walk over a vineyard, sometimes it doesn't seem like the, the lush fields of France that you might imagine. You've also got something here which says clay soils leading to powerful wines. I said, what on earth does that mean? Yeah, and again, it's maybe a bit too geeky for series one of the pod, but let's let's try and try, try and deal with it because this is, if you like, the terroir influence of soil. We've already agreed that we can't taste soil, but we can get a terroir influence from the soil, and basically, it's all to do with the fact that as you've already picked up, or I've already mentioned, probably more to the point, the vine needs water and nutrients, obviously, to to survive. Certain soil types enable more water uptake and more nutrient uptake to the vine than others. Chalk soils are heavy and potentially more waterlogged than sandy soils. Sandy soils drain very easily, don't they? And so as a result, and in sandy soil, the vine gets less access to water and to nutrients. So in other words, some of those basic kind of trace elements like nitrogen, phosphorus, potassium, they're going to be less available to vines in a sandy soil because the, the nutrients come up in the water and the soils drain very quickly but then kind of more waterlogged soil like clay the water and therefore the nutrients hang around a bit more so the vine has better access to them and if a vine has better access to nitrogen phosphorus and potassium and a load of other elements as well then it can do more structurally within uh, its structure as a, as a as a plant and within the fruit it produces so things like tannins which are part of the grape structure, as we know, are more likely to be higher for vines who are planted in soils where the potential for uptake of elements and water is greater. Does that make sense? Now, you might think that you went on and on then, but every word in that last essay was doing its job. I absolutely get it. It's amazing, isn't it, how the, the, the soil type, as well as the, the incidence of that particular piece of soil, makes such a difference. But it makes such perfect sense when you say it. It's completely logic. It's how much and how quickly nutrients can get into this plant. Uh, and what you are looking for in this plant is a slow ripening and a little bit of stress at the same time. Do you know what? I think maybe, I don't know whether we should taste the wines again, because we're moving into winemaking now, I think. Looking at the Chenin Blanc. And it also says a distinctive kumquat character with further layers of fresh fruit and vanilla give this wine a rich and rewarding texture. Not 100% what a kumquat tastes like, but the vanilla stuff really does resonate with um, what I felt when I tasted this wine. Lovely. Excellent. Oh, I was about to call you a, a kumquat then, but I thought that might be a bit rude. Let's just talk about winemaking a bit. This wine was fermented in oak. As I mentioned earlier, most winemaking is done in stainless steel. So immediately you've got potentially some oak influence, potentially vanilla. What does that mean, oak influence? You get flavours from oak, from cooperage, you know, oak barrels that have been toasted. You get flavours like vanilla and cedar and clove and smoke and, and sometimes coconut if it's American oak. I can smell it. I mean, just smell this. What are you getting on the nose all on this one? I, I, I can smell loads of stuff. I'm getting vanilla and spice and baking spice and sort of, it's gorgeous, isn't it? Even on the, before we've even tasted it. I mean, I'm trying to improve, but you know, not trying too hard because this is about enjoying yourself. I wouldn't have said vanilla. I get it now. On some of the, some of the smells that, you know, you, you, you talk about red currant comes up a lot, licorice sometimes comes up. I'm like, oh, I don't get it. But the, 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 the actual vanilla pods, I'm not talking about vanilla, I'm not talking about Wall's vanilla ice cream. I'm talking about those vanilla pods that you put in some, some desserts and creme caramel etc i can see it i can i can see it i can smell it it's definitely coming out but i do have a question about these oak barrels you talk about steel and you talk about oak and so i go okay now that that makes that makes oak that makes sense steel sounds practical why oak specifically and are there other types of wood or indeed other materials that you might want to ferment wine in because you'll get different flavors it'll help the fermentation process it seems to me like there's an infinite amount of substances you could surround wine in to ferment it so st steel and oak are the only ones you mentioned why is that or, or there are others of course there are others all this is wine you know this, oh, yes, of course. You know, this is the most fragmented subject in the world oak is used because a, it's traditional. B, it's porous to oxygen. So, you know, just from a chemistry point of view, you're allowing some oxygen a little bit to get into the wine. And if you're oxidizing 
wine, you can introduce some oxidative flavours into the wine. Uh, so that's, again, a decision you might want to choose to do. And if you're making a red wine that's got very high tannins, as I mentioned earlier, then you definitely want the oxygen in there because it's going to polymerize, i.e. soften the tannins and make the wine more approachable maybe five years down the road or something like that. Other materials, stainless steel, just because it's easy. And apart from anything else, all winemaking up until again we covered this briefly tiny point in our history ep do you remember a couple of eps ago you said to me what's the most important thing that's happened in in the wine world and i came out with something which i thought sounded a bit dull but it's actually really important temperature controlled winemaking basically in the past 50 years through stainless steel and through technology winemakers can control the temperature during fermentation because the other totally overlooked thing that happens during fermentation which is basically sugar as in grape juice plus yeast equals alcohol plus carbon dioxide plus Plus heat heat does that make it an exothermic reaction rich i'm just remembering a bit of uh, o level there i think i might be out stumped second ball for six i'm possibly (laughs) there on that one but yes it sounds right so managing heat is really important and that's why stainless steel is so important because with technology now you can have temperature controlled stainless steel fermentations up until that point winemaking fermentation was such a hazardous business frothy vigorous hectic fermentations heat heat means smelly means off odors means all sorts of ghastly bacterial things can go on wine spoilage but basically it was such a hit and miss business making wine because of the lack of temperature control in the winery stainless steel has changed all that are you saying that um that would you like to taste the wine sir madam is something of a piece of theater these days because you can you can pretty much be assured of the quality of the wine because i i I don't know what to do at that point i'm english obviously so i don't want to complain under any circumstances the guy could give me a bottle of urine he could give me a bottle of pure unadulterated goat's urine and i'll go "Mm, yes no no no, and you'll say no but most importantly you'll say thank you very much (laughs) (laughs) thank you very much for giving me some we oui. thank you. Is it sort of something of a, of a just a, a pointless ritual now? Because I, I, it makes me feel a little uncomfortable. It's a bit annoying, but I suppose it's a way of covering your backside. Because if the wine's under cork, there's still a chance, tiny chance now, because the whole mm. process, everything's got so much better hygiene standards are so much higher the chance of, of having a corked wine are extremely unlikely. But if you've got a corked wine and you hadn't been given the chance to test it, you'd be a bit cross. And it would be yeah. more of a faff going back to the waiter saying, I'm sorry, this wine's corked. And then Basil Fawlty would say, no, 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 no. No, I uncorked it. It went from the bottle to the glass. Uh, <laughs> so one thing, Rich, listening to all this, the, the, the nice division there is between producing grapes and then producing wine from those grapes. Love the fact that we've got a good clean demarcation. What seems to be coming through loud and clear is that one needs the other so you can't have terrible grapes to make a beautiful wine and you must have someone who's incredibly skilled in making wine to make the best out of a lovely crop of grapes that's what i'm that's what i'm hearing here yeah totally all totally and it seems so obvious to me now and you've picked this up really really quickly but i got as far as wact diploma level thinking I realised that viticulture is important, of course, and I've studied it to, to some degree. But I still had in my head that somehow there was some kind of alchemy going on in the winery that made the difference. And clearly there are some amazing winemakers who can do all sorts of funky things to make wine interesting. That work is all pointless, obviously, if the grapes coming into the winery are of poor quality. So, obviously, so I mean, I know that's obvious, but the only thing I would say through my five years so far life of of, of wine study is that never, never underestimate the importance, the hazards, the difficulty, the heartbreak, the nightmare, the brilliance and the just mercurial nature of growing grapes. It's just so fundamental. It always seems to me like the um, relationship that architects have with engineers, which I've heard a lot about in some of the clients I've had in my game, is that the architect gets a lot of credit for coming up with a beautiful end product, but without the engineer saying, actually, if you built that, it looks great 
in a model on the computer or in balsa wood, but it would actually fall over. <laughs> you need that sort of engineering underneath as a base yeah. in order to do the beautiful thing, which is making wine. Very quickly, about why possibly I thought winemaking was kind of the big deal. There was a guy called Robert Parker. Robert Parker, wine critic, became very big in the 90s, American wine critic. He gave scores to wine, and a lot of big scores went to big wines, i.e. wines that were big in alcohol, had lots of oak, lots of stuff going on in the winery. And I think that kind of tilted people's views of wine towards winemaking rather than viticulture. So I'm blaming slightly, sorry, Robert, I'm blaming Robert Parker a bit. And again, that was a style thing. It was was quite a macho thing. It was a kind of um, Burt Lancaster or Sylvester Stallone, showing my age, sorry, a bit, approach to it. So, you know, so it's quite macho. Well, say The Rock, Richard. Just say The Rock for our our younger listeners. The Rock, yeah, you're with me? Good, thank goodness me. Approach (laughs) to, to it. Now... What, what is clearer is that a lot of the business now, I talk to winemakers and people who know more about wine than me, and so much more discussion is around viticulture than around intervention in the winery, and I think that's interesting. And there is a, a move to organic wines at the moment. What does that actually mean um, in, in the context of winemaking, Richard? Obviously, in the bigger picture scheme of things, if you're organic, it means you're, you're respecting nature more, and if you're... Um, biodynamic which is a kind of step even further on than organic then um, then you are uh, eschewing any kind of clinical medical you know sort of uh, chemical influence at all it's all about mother nature and working with the cycles of 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 nature to make your wine but just going back to the organic question because it's just a bit more practical it basically means by and large you will avoid using pesticides and that's quite a big deal actually because if you, particularly if you are in a in a wet climate, if you are in Bordeaux or Bergerac, where it rains a hell of a lot, I know, lived there for that year, as you know, to not use pesticides is a big shout because it's so damp and the risk of fungal diseases and other horrible things so high. The simplest thing to do would just be go and just spray massively. But to be certified organic you cannot do that and yet quite rightly in terms of the environment there's a big push for people to become organic and avoid these chemical products much easier to be organic if you're in the mediterranean than if you're near the atlantic and organic winemaking was the way wine was made up until relatively recently i suppose okay well blimey uh, we've covered an awful lot of ground as usual actually um, we have i've learned about making grapes and i've learned about making wine the fact that they're both important and it comes out at the end in me choosing a wine i'm at the wine list i've got the wine list open as ever and i'm looking for my chenin blancs uh, to start off with and there is a, a chenin blanc and i'm not actually surprised now uh, having listened to what you've said that's a dessert wine it's come from south africa uh, and this is the chebrus wine list that we always refer to and it's from Svartland. quite a trendy area of, of, of south africa yeah sort of up north a bit of, of, of cape town quite warm inlandy inland sort of uh, area and it's a moulinier a 2008 moulinier dessert wine from south africa chenin blanc and then of course in the loire valley section of the wine list there's a whole a lovely host of um, Chenin Blanc from the very reasonable um, all the way through to the um, quite eye-poppingly pricey, the Eric Morgan um, Savignier. Oh, yeah. Savignier is an area, a very small area of the Loire Valley where they just Chenin Blanc and their real microclimate there, incredible ripening of grapes, incredible quality of wines, hence the price. So the Beaujolais Red, as we know, Beaujolais is not a grape, who would have thought Beaujolais was a grape? Not me, or maybe I did. There are seven of them. Seven of them le- listed. And just going back to the taste of our Beaujolais, we had the 2020, so the latest available wine society, Beaujolais Village. It's lovely. It's got lovely, refreshing acidity. The acidity is quite high in this Gamay grape again. It's a bit of red fruit, a bit of that kind of funky sweet thing that you picked up earlier, like a fruit lollipop, definitely. But it's also, I get a bit of raspberry, a bit of blueberry, and the tannins are low. The alcohol is medium. I guess it's, you can look on the bottle, I think it's 13 or 13.5. And it's just a lovely, lovely, straightforward glass of red wine, which also makes great picnic wine because those tannins are so low because of the slight funky winemaking that we talked about earlier on that, that keeps the tannins out, which keeps the fruit up 
and the kind of uh, appeal up as well, particularly if you're having fun with a picnic and you want a red mm. wine, Beaujolais Village would be my go-to wine. There's a place of tannins and it isn't the park. 13.5% volume, Richard, as you uh, so rightly predicted. Uh, Appellation d'origine protégée. Oh, my dear boy, we've done another rep. Should we, uh, sh- should we go and have a can of beer? Let's have a Guinness and a Nuki Brown. I don't know. There's a place for all of these things, you know. There really is. That's the great thing about exploring life is that actually there's nothing, there's actually nothing better than a pint of Guinness at a rugby match, say, or maybe on the banks of the Liffey. And in context, there's, there's certainly nothing, nothing better than one of these wines. The great thing about doing this series with you, Rich, is that now when I get out of wine list, there are a, a couple of signposts I can look for. Things I know. I know I like a Voignier. For example, I know I like a Chenin Blanc. I, I, you know, I, I might pick a Beaujolais. You know, I know I'm starting to know what I like now. Uh, and when we start to mix it with food, which we're going which to we're, do, we're going to do, uh, then I, 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 there'll be no stopping me. I'll be it'll be my superpower. Fantastic. Well, brilliant, all that, that was that was a, a bit of a romp through great growing straight viticulture. We, we must have covered what two percent, <laughs> maybe, of, uh, of viticulture vinification. So much we didn't talk um, about. It's ridiculous, isn't it? And it's like flown by this hour. Yeah, yeah. And thank you, Wine Society, for these really two lovely, lovely wines. I will just say, all you can get Chenin Blancs that taste very different to this one. They can be a bit more kind of ordinary and a bit more two-dimensional. We are tasting old vine Chenin Blanc, a really good quality version here that's seen some oak. It's got a lot of character. Whereas the Beaujolais, you could argue, lacks character in a way because it's simple and fruity, but is equally brilliant in a kind of different way. Worth every penny to me. Ha! What do I know? And I'll tell you what I know, a hell of a lot more than I did before I started this uh, podcast with you. Did you just say why no? Oh no, you said what did I... <laughs> <laughs> I'm, good. I'm almost a wino. Get your taste buds ready, in, in licked up and in good shape for next week. Let me just uh, flag up the four wines for next week, folks. All the de- the absolute details on the website. But we're going to be tasting a beautiful Pecorino white wine from Italy. We're going to be tasting a Torontes from Argentina, which possibly is made at a latitude lower than 30 degrees what we are going to be tasting a santa barbara pinot noir from california hello so all your homework for next week is to watch the movie sideways for the 43rd time love that film and we're going to be tasting a 2016 rioja reserva oh wow that's going to be delicious and winemaking viticulture is going to be a strong element of all four of these wines hence that's why we've done such a big focus this week oh i can't wait back to you mate and 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 take it away well thank you rich so it's all about wine tasting next week and i i think it's perfect timing because my confidence is building with every session we do here i've got the confidence to say hang on that tastes like uh, grapefruit or hang on that tastes like an omelet or hang on that tastes like uh, beef bourguignon or hang on that tastes like a vindaloo you're so kind and that you you never you never say that anything is a is a ridiculous thing you just sort of say what what's in your head is valid just wait until next week because your taste buds are telling you something and you're trying to translate it into adjectives that make sense i i can't tell you how much i'm enjoying this and looking forward to next week i've learned an awful lot there's so much more to learn i think i might have to do some more reading but rich as always thank you look forward to next time get the old fiddle out let's say goodbye for now goodbye